Well, I wanted to show you um, that the both both the testaments have three parts. And if you remember, three is God's signature. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, you look at Revelation chapter 4, the seraphs say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who's coming. In every case, it's three and even three sets of three. And so the, the Old Testament is called by the Jews the Tanakh. Uh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketavim. Torah, law, teaching. Torah is a word that comes from uh, a word that means to throw a spear. Yara. And when you throw a spear, you end up pointing at the target. And the rabbis say, God, whatever God points out, that's the Torah. And the word Torah, I don't know if I've ever showed you this. The Hebrew word, Torah, if you take the letters and add them up, this is 400. This is six, this is two hundred, and this is five. Add them together, you got six hundred and eleven, which is the exact number of regulations in Torah. In other words, Torah means six hundred and eleven. And so the Jews, all their whole alphabet, their whole, the whole Bible in Hebrew, is set up in a bunch of numbers, and it's so complex. You may remember years ago when I taught Genesis here, talked about Genesis 1, if you start with the sixth letter, six is the number of man and sin, and that's what Genesis is about. So if you start with the sixth letter of the Hebrew text, but a sheet, that T on the end, starts Torah, and you count every 50th letter. 50 is the number for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes 50 days after Passover on Pentecost. And so if you count every 50th letter after the first T, it spells out Torah, every 50th letter. It does it in numbers. Start with a different letter. Start with the eighth letter because numbers is about the new beginning of the nation of Israel. The number eight is the number of new beginning. There were eight people on the ark. If you remember this, I've got the... If I haven't sent you or given you the little sheet that has, uh, I think it's two or three pages uh, that I did on the numbers, uh, I did it on my own, and then I was showing it to a guy up here in Tulsa, a fellow by the name of Carl Teal. He said, haven't you ever read Bullinger's great classic number in Scripture? I said, I'd never heard of it. He said, well, I've got two of them. I'll give you one. I turned around, I'll... From his desk and pulled one down and gave it to me. I took it home and read it that day and blew me away. Everything I had, every conclusion. Oh yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing book. 
Well, you probably could if you read fast. I don't know. But I, went, I found out that it agreed with every decision I had come to, uh, but with a thousand times more documentation, more reasoning. So at Torah, every 50th letter in Exodus as well as Genesis, and then the same thing, excuse me? First chapter, only in the first chapter, only the first time through, because the first parts of all books resist change. But the farther you go in copying a manuscript, the more mistakes you make. And so when the manuscript's passed on down, there are mistakes that come in later, things that are added by the copyist, things that are deleted by accident. You know, you do the best you can, but... Uh, no, no human being is, fa- is infallible. Uh, if you have any question, by the way, if I bring up anything that bothers you or you want to talk about, uh, please let me know. We'll talk about it certainly at the end of, of the session before we're done. Um, the second one is Nevi'im, and that's the word for prophets or seers. God's signature, there's, it's always three. The Tanakh has three parts, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketavim, the writings. This would be the wisdom, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, when I studied it for the first time in Hebrew, discovered uh, traces of 11 languages. Uh, Solomon applied his trade all over the Mediterranean world. He had fleets of ships, and uh, he learned languages from all over the world. He, I mean, the man was incredible, a thousand years before Jesus. So you got these three divisions in the Old Testament, and then when you get into the New Testament, you have three again, God's signature. You have the Gospels. Iwangaloi in the, in the Greek. And the Gospels are in a biography. And there are four of them. Four is the universal number. Uh, in Jewish interpretation, there are four levels of interpretation. And these four Gospels fit right into the four levels of Jewish interpretation. I'll talk about that briefly. In a little bit. Then you got the history or Acts written by Luke who also wrote one of the Gospels. And uh, Acts is a history of the first century church up until about 68 or so. 67 maybe. Uh, Paul ends up in Acts going to, we'll talk about that. He, he goes to uh, appear before Nero. And then the epistles. One of the students asked me if that's a wife of an apostle. No, an epistle is a letter. A letter that follows a specific form. And when we get to those letters uh, this week, we'll talk about that form. You have any questions about these 
two sets of three. Two is the, is the number of a fact. And so when you have two testaments with three parts, it's factual, yes. Oh, K-E-T-H-U-V-I-M. It could be, yeah, this, this is an A-T-H, I'm sorry, I always ram them together for some reason. I should print them. T-H-U-V-R-B-H-I-M. However you spell them, you're translating them from Hebrew, so it's debatable. So three sections, uh, the first are the four Gospels. And uh, I told you what led up to the New Testament this morning. Alexander the Great spreading the Greek language and culture. So by the time the Gospel comes into the world, there's a universal language. Uh, wherever Paul went, he spoke the language. He could also speak Hebrew, he could speak Aramaic, speak Syriac, speak Latin. But we know for sure that his main speech was Greek because he went to a Greek university in Tarsus where he grew up. That's uh, southeastern Turkey. Uh, and uh, then he came to Jerusalem and studied under Gamaliel, the great rabbi who actually stood up for the church in the book of Acts. Uh, said, if this is not of God, it will disappear. But it's if, it, if it's of God and you try to shut it down, you will be found fighting against God. All right. Starting with the Gospels. There are four. There are also four levels of Hebrew interpretation. And I have talked with you about these before. The first is Mishnah. Mishnah means to repeat. And this is the Gospel of Mark. Mark was summoned to Rome in the early 60s, probably about 61 or 62, and uh, told to write down Peter's sermons in Rome to the Gentiles. And so that's what the Gospel of Mark is. It's a combination of Peter's sermons. Mark uh, has nothing to say about the, the birth of Jesus because uh, Romans wouldn't be interested in genealogies. They don't, they're not interested in, you know, a person's birth. They're interested in what the person can do. And it's all about power and action. That's what Mark is all about. Peter adapting himself to the Roman culture, writes about acts and power, the things that Jesus could do. And uh, it's filled with... You know, I didn't realize, I'd read the book of Mark several times, but I was asked to teach a young man named Alan Etter, uh, who had just joined the church at Valley View. And, uh, I mean, we're starting from scratch. He didn't know there were two testaments. He just knew that his wife had left him and he was either going to commit suicide or come to God. So he ended up coming to this church. He heard the gospel for the first time and believed it. He was baptized. And then uh, one of the ministers asked me if I would teach him. 
So I set up a one-on-one appointment with him on a Tuesday night, and I would go over there twice a month. And I told him first time we were together, I said, why don't you read? We just got to know each other a little bit. And I said, why don't you read the Gospel of Mark and write down any questions you have? Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Uh, he read the Gospel of Mark, was blown away by Jesus, just thought Jesus was incredible. He had four legal-sized sheets of paper full of questions, and about 80% of it was about demons. I hadn't realized before, I mean, I'd read it, and I knew there were demon stories, but I hadn't realized how many demon stories in Mark, showing the power of Jesus over demonic activity, over the devil. So I spent probably six months, twice a, twice a month, two or three hours together, Tuesday evening, answering those questions and discussing those questions. It was a great experience for me. Brought my feet right back down out of the Ph.D. clouds to the foundation and uh, helped, me, helped me with my classes, helped me with my students, helped me understand where people really are. And uh, so that was a great experience. And then when we finished that, I said, let's next time read uh, the book of Acts and uh, write down any questions. So when I went next week, he apologized. He'd only read 21 chapters of Acts and had, and had again, four legal-sized sheets of paper full of questions. Uh, it was absolutely astounding. But Mishnah is the first level of interpretation Mishnah deals with action, and what Mark does in his gospel is simply repeat what Peter says. Uh, if, a, if a guy, a Jew, uh, wanted to fulfill his Mishnah for a holiday, he would ask the rabbi, and the rabbi would say, well, you'll, you should offer uh, a half gallon of olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, first press. And uh, offer that and give that to the priest. And that's your job. So he would get that and give it to the priest and go back to work. And so it's about action. It's not about thinking. It's not about discussion. It's not about depth. It's very simple about action. Mark starts abruptly and ends abruptly. And it's the shortest and simplest of all the Gospels. The second one is uh, Gemara, the second level of Jewish interpretation. It can be spelled with or without the H. Uh, Gemara means complete. And that's the Gospel of Luke. Luke has more detail than the other Gospels in general. He tells us about, he alone tells us about the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, Mark's gospel doesn't even mention anything about the birth. But Luke's gospel has a long section about the birth of John the Baptist and his father's unbelief, the old priest. I love John the Baptist's parents' names. Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah means God, uh, Yahweh remembers, the Lord remembers. And uh, 
Elizabeth means God keeps his word. And that's what happened with that old couple. They had prayed for so many years that they'd probably just given up. And that's when the angel shows up and says, by the way, you're having a son. How can I know this? He said, well, you won't be able to talk for the next nine months. So uh, he, he figured it out. Then, in detail, the birth of Jesus, the only gospel who mentions shepherds and angels appearing at the birth of Jesus. Nobody else talks about that. See, Luke, the first four verses of Luke's gospel, points out that this is a thoroughly historical document. He interviews people and writes down what they say. And so Luke is summarizing other people's views. He says, it was told to us by those who were eyewitnesses of the word. In other words, Luke was not an eyewitness. But he did travel with the apostle Paul, and so he had a connection to Jesus very closely through the apostle Paul. Uh, the book of Acts has sections that are called the we sections, meaning we did this and we did that. And that's when Luke joins Paul in his, in his travels. Uh, Mishnah first. Gemara, these are Hebrew names. Mishnah is a book about this thick, written by a man named Danby in English. Uh, the Mishnah is the writing down later of all the oral teaching of the rabbis. And so that's, that's what the Mishnah is. Gemara is a more complete study of the teaching of the rabbis, where it analyzes some of the teaching that's in the Mishnah. And then there's a third one, and that's Midrash. And the Midrash is a whole different thing. Midrash means to search. It's The idea is like going through a basket of oats, a basket of grain, and finding the kernel you want and bringing that out and discussing it and talking about it. They go back through the Old Testament. This is Matthew. They go back through the Old Testament. And they dig out a word, and they discuss the meanings of the words. The rabbis say every word has 70 meanings, and every letter in the word has seven meanings. And I think they're probably right. Uh, the teaching about the words of the Scripture is fantastic. For example, when Matthew sees that Jesus is born of a virgin, he looks for the word virgin in the Hebrew Bible, but he doesn't find it. So he goes to the Greek Old Testament, a translation that had been around about 300 years. And he goes back to that Greek translation of the Old Testament and discovers the word Parthenos. You've heard of the Parthenon. That uh, was built for the worship of virgin Athena, out of after which Athens is named. And so here, Parthenos is the word that's used in uh, Isaiah 7, 14. 
In the Greek text, the Hebrew wouldn't make its point because the Hebrew word means young woman. But the Greek text says virgin, so he zeroes in on that word, pulls that word out of context. You go back and read Isaiah 7, you'll see it has nothing to do with Jesus the Messiah. It's a war between two kingdoms. And, uh, but it says a young woman shall become pregnant and bear a child and call his name Emmanuel. So he makes a play on the word virgin and the word Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel. And that's his point in that passage. He takes it out of context because it fits his context. And this is what the Madrasic scholars do. They find a word, they analyze it, they discuss it, they talk about it, and they take it out and turn it every way to catch every facet. That's what they say wisdom is about dealing with a word of Scripture. And he got it right. Jesus was born of a virgin. He knew that. Yes, sir. Uh, the Revised Standard, because they translate it from Hebrew. You're talking about Isaiah 714? Uh, they use the word young woman. Yeah, because that's what it means. The, the word Alma, is, it means a young woman. It can be a virgin. It can be a, a pregnant woman. It can be uh, just a young woman, a servant. Um, but... The LXX became more specific when the, when the Greek Old Testament, when the Greek translators translated that Hebrew word Alma, young woman, they made it specific, virgin. And so, since Jesus was born of a virgin, Matthew saw that, he uses that word there and quotes that passage. But I went back and studied that for a long time, trying to figure out how in the world that connects, and then I realized he's a Madrasic scholar, his real name, you remember? What, Matthew, your real name? Levi. He was a priest. He knew all the symbolism of the priesthood. And he used a lot of symbol in his writing. Uh, I mean, a brilliant man with a big vocabulary. Uh, different from the others here. Uh, Luke's vocabulary is pretty good, too, because he's a doctor. And he's got... He knows terms. He, when somebody is sick in some way, he uses medical terms to describe that person. The, the last one is the Zohar. And Zohar means prophetic. Uh, it means enlightened. Uh, You've heard some of the sayings of the Zohar. Silence is golden. You heard that? That's not the full quote. The full quote is, Silence is golden except in study of Torah. In other words, in study of the Bible. Silence is golden until you study the Word. Then you need to discuss it. You need to talk about it. And that's why I think lecture is the weakest way to teach. It's like taking a bucket of water and throwing it a bunch of narrow neck vessels, you know, pop bottles. See how much water gets in. Not much. Uh, lecture's not the best way, but discussion. 
and question and answer is the best way. That's why I always try to open mine up at the end. And that's John. And John is prophetic. He's enlightened. He's symbolic. Think of, think of the symbols he used. He doesn't talk about shepherds and angels in the birth of Jesus. He doesn't talk about the Magi. That's Matthew. Matthew talks about the Magi. Matthew being a priest is one of the ruling class of Israel. And so he's interested in rulers. He wasn't interested in the shepherds. He's interested in the Magi, you know. And I mentioned uh, that the, the Chinese saw the comet in 5 B.C., kept a record of it, and then that comet came to the Middle East where the, the wise men were, and they made the trek, and by the time they got to Jesus, he was in, his family was in a private house. Uh, if you see any, uh, you know, nativity scenes with the Magi there, they, they weren't there, the nativity. They were there several months later, probably Jesus was a young toddler. And, uh, but John doesn't do that. He doesn't refer to historical specifics. He talks about in the beginning was the Word. He uses symbol. The Word was with God. And the only translation of verse 1 that's correct in the English is the uh, New English Bible. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And what God was, the Word also was. So in other words, they're of the same essence. The Word and God are the same essence. They're not equal. To say the Word was God sounds like the Word is it. There's nothing else. Well, John is symbolic. And John uses Word and light. John 1.9, the light that enlightens everyone is coming into the world. So uh, these Gospels are all different. And they're all different levels of interpretation. When you have four witnesses at a trial... And you ask them what you what they saw. They're going to express what they saw in their own words. And still, it's going to be accurate, even though every word and idea doesn't agree with the words and ideas of the other witnesses. Does that make sense? I love the fact that they are so different because it means they didn't copy off each other. You know, there are scholars who make a big deal out of Mark being first and Matthew and Luke copying off of Mark. If that happened, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't make, they wouldn't have so many differences. You know, Matthew has two blind men being healed, where Mark and Luke have one. Uh, Matthew has two demoniacs, where Ma- Matthew and Luke have, uh, uh, Mark and Luke have one. Uh, uh, like today when I read that passage uh, in Matthew 17, after six days Jesus went up in the mountain. Luke says after about eight days, because he didn't copy. If they agreed on everything, I would think that there was collusion. But Matthew, Matthew did his life in Jerusalem. He did his writing in Jerusalem. He kept his records in Jerusalem. Mark is clear up in Rome, thousands of miles away. And he's writing down Peter's sermons. And Luke's traveling the world with Paul and doing his own thing. And so never never copying off each other. 
They wrote individually and personally, and they wrote specifically, and they were different from each other. And then John comes along one whole generation later in the 90s, after these guys have been gone 25, 30 years. And John writes his amazing, symbolic interpretation of Jesus. John loves the number seven. And he writes his book about seven miracles that Jesus did. The first 11 chapters of John are seven miracles Jesus did. And Jesus' teaching. And then the last half of the book is his argument and teaching with the disciples, trying to help the disciples. And then finally, the end of the book, as you know, uh, his trial, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and appearances to Peter, re-establishing Peter, uh, saying to you, love me three times after Peter denied him three times. Okay, so do you have any questions on these four Gospels? Yes, Aaron. Well, they told no one until they wrote the Gospels down. Now, they may have told people, you know, years later. But it's something like that. You would never forget seeing something like that. And when Peter writes about it in Second Peter chapter 1, he says, we were with him on the holy mountain. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths. You know, we're not making this up. We're giving, putting our lives on the line for something that we have seen, we have witnessed. We heard the voice from the holy mountain saying, this is my son, out of the cloud, you know. And so read Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Second Peter is written by Peter. First Peter is not. First uh, Peter was written by uh, Silas. In fact, chapter 5, verse 12 says, I, Silas, uh, through, uh, Peter says, through Silas, I have written to you. So Silas is a writer of First Peter, and it's much better Greek than Second Peter. Second Peter is just rough Greek. It's barbaric, because he was a fisherman. He wasn't, he wasn't a learned scholar, but he had been with Jesus, and it blew people away to talk to him because of that. That answer it? I think, you know, it's like Mark ends by saying the women said nothing to anyone because they were afraid when they saw the empty tomb. They went home and said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. See in the Mark. But then you read the rest of the Gospels. What happened later, they felt guilty and they went out and told them. And so things change and that's what happened, I think, with that situation. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> he tells us, go out into all the world and make disciples, and we don't tell anybody. But the people, he said, don't tell anyone, they went out and broadcast it. The leper that was healed went out and told everybody what Jesus had done. 
So on and on here, we've got so many differences in these Gospels. Let me, let me go through them one more time real quick. Matthew sets up his Gospel in five sections. Matthew's Gospel has five sections. Action and teaching. Action and teaching. Five times through the book. I think he did this, or at least his followers did, to connect with the Torah, the, the five books of Moses. Um, if you think about Matthew, think about the, the fact that it was divided up into five. Matthew was in the middle of his ministry when he was attacked by the Jews and stoned to death in Jerusalem. And his followers were under persecution. And they were Greek-speaking Jews. And so when he quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't quote the Hebrew. Luke quotes the Greek throughout. And uh, these people understood. They, they had a Greek Bible in the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And uh, it's called the Septuagint because the scholars, there were 70 scholars in 70 days that translated the number 70 is, is a septuaginta in Greek. So this is one of the things about Matthew. He, he was a tax collector, a head tax collector, so he, <coughs> he knew what the Greeks called tachigraphy. We call it shorthand. They called it quick writing. He knew how to take notes quickly. So he's got the Sermon on the Mount all in one, ple- one place because he was able to take notes of Jesus' teaching and combine them. Okay, and so that's, I think, what happened. He had notes of all the life of Jesus, including after the resurrection and up to the, uh, the, the Great Commission. And then when he was stoned to death, his disciples took his notes and moved away from Jerusalem where the center of the persecution was and then sat down and put all this down. Uh, Christopher Stendhal at Harvard called it the school of Matthew. That the, the school that Matthew taught took Matthew's teaching and wrote it down and ordered it as we have it today. And I think that's probably an accurate presentation. Mark, on the other hand, I think was just simply a, a secretary. I think he wrote down... Peter's sermons, as Peter preached. And then Luke was a historian who went back and analyzed things and interviewed people, uh, made lists of things. You can see lists throughout Luke. Um, <clears throat> he, he knew what he was doing, and he wrote it all down in order. And he did it for a Roman uh, official whose name was Theophilus. <clears throat> Excuse me, I don't know if I told you that my folks almost named me Theophilus because I was born. They thought I was Theophilus baby they'd ever seen. Uh, that, that didn't, that, that didn't happen. Uh, he, uh, Theophilus means a friend of God, one who honors God. And so that's what, uh, the person who was in the Roman church. You know, a lot of books went to Rome besides the book of Romans. And the book of Luke was sent to a Roman. And then the book of Acts was later sent to that same Roman. You look at the very beginning of both books, Luke and Acts, and Luke says to Theophilus. 
So he's doing his writing to this one Roman guy, a young man who had become a Christian. So glad he kept a record of what happened in the early church. If we didn't have the book of Acts, we wouldn't know. So let me, let me go back again one more time. Mark, simple, short, easy to read, lots of action. The key word in Mark is the word immediately. Over and over and over. Immediately there was a man in the synagogue with a shriveled hand. Immediately Jesus stood up and stared at all the people in order and then called that man up front. Immediately he said, stretch out your hand. And immediately he stretched out his hand and was healed. Just go through and and count the immediately's in Mark's gospel. A lot of action. Luke organizes everything in order. Uh, He disagrees with Matthew sometimes in the order, like the three temptations of Jesus. Luke put it in proper chronological order. Matthew put it in an order that made his point. Uh, Luke is much more orderly than any of the others. He does that throughout. He has more. He has uh, three dozen uh, uh, parables in his gospel. And about three dozen specific miracles, uh, though there are many others referred to. Uh, Matthew also has about three dozen parables. But Matthew's teaching is unique. Now, he's the only one that mentions at the death of Jesus. You remember the part about the great curtain in the temple? This curtain, folks, I just read an article about it. It was 60 feet wide, 60 feet tall, and at least four inches thick. And it was ripped in two at the, at the resurrection from top to bottom. And what that means, folks, it doesn't mean just that the veil was torn. You know, the veil has been mentioned throughout Scripture. I did a whole word study on the veil. You can, you can do a study on that. Go back in Isaiah 25. God will remove the veil that's over all the nations. Talking about the shroud that we have, the, the death. You know, all of us are going to die unless Jesus shows up first. And then we're going to be changed. Uh, There's a great verse for your nursery. Uh, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Uh, You probably heard that for your nursery. Um, Sorry I got off on that. But Luke is a detailed writer. Then Matthew goes into uh, organizing the teaching into five sections. And uh, Matthew probably has more detail about what happened, the resurrection, the ripping of the veil, the tombs being opened, mentioned only in Matthew, people seeing their dead loved ones walking in the streets of Jerusalem. Only Matthew. (coughs) Uh, I love the comparisons between the trial accounts in the Gospels and the uh, crucifixion accounts in the Gospels. <coughs> Excuse me. I love the uh, 
you know, the differences. Just look at, at how the Gospels present the trial, how they present uh, the death of Jesus, completely different. They have seven different sayings that he said on the cross, and only one or two in each of, each of the Gospels. Um, Matthew also is the one that has the final commission. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus met with over 500 of our brothers at once. And I believe that's Matthew 28, where he meets them on top of a mountain, and they come to him, and some of them doubt. And Jesus at that time says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations. The command is make disciples. Go, baptize, and teach are all uh, participles in the text. Then you got Zohar. You got John, the number seven, the prologue of John, uh, the word and the word becoming flesh. And at the end of it, he says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. The only place in Scripture where Jesus is called the only begotten God. The rest of the time in John's Gospel, it's the only begotten Son. Monogonis is the Greek word. And only John uses that, no one else. Now, how can Jesus be the only begotten Son of God? And as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he's the firstborn among many brothers. How can he be the only begotten Son of God and be the firstborn among many brothers? That seems contradictory. But his only begottenness is his connection with the Father. And his firstborn among many is his connection with us. And we are to form Christ in ourselves with God's help, with the Spirit's help, so that we can be like him. So John divides the book. If you take the book of John, 1 through 11, and then the middle of chapter 12, you have the the break. And then the rest of it, all the way up through 22, is his final work with his disciples, his teaching. He spends a lot of time with the teaching. Chapter 12 is the, the, the line of demarcation for John. There's a theme in John's Gospel that begins in chapter 2, where Jesus' mom comes up to him and says, Son, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, this is... Because of the culture that they were in, women were not supposed to speak to men in public. And so Jesus says to her, what's that got to do with you and me, woman? And she just ignores it and turns to the servants and say, do what he tells you, (laughs) mama. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a lack of respect. It was just, that's, you don't do that. It's not against the cultural norm. You don't speak to a man in public. So Jesus changes water into wine right there. Uh, an incredible 
miracle, a natural miracle. Uh, ever since the flood, God has been taking the water up into the plant and out into the fruit, and the fruit naturally ferments. And so Jesus just speeds up that process. And by the time the master of the feast tastes the wine, he says, you've saved the best to last. Different from most people. Well, Jesus told that woman, he told Mary, my hour has not yet come. And again and again throughout John, if you read the first 11 chapters, you'll see him say, my hour has not yet come. When the Jews in chapter 8 picked up stones to stone him, he just disappeared. He had told them, I am, before Abraham came into being. And they picked up stones to stone him because he was making himself God. And then later chapters, the same thing happens. He picks up, they pick up stones in chapter 9 after he's healed a man born blind. Can you imagine healing a man born blind? Here's the mark of the Messiah. You know that? The proof that Jesus is the Messiah was healing the blind. Nobody had ever done that before. And when Jesus read Isaiah 61 in his opening sermon in his hometown, Isaiah 60, 61, the Spirit of Yahweh is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to give sight to blind eyes. Nobody had ever done it before. Elijah and Elisha did many, many miracles. But nobody ever healed a blind man. But here's a man, Jesus healed several blind people, but he healed one blind man who has born blind in John 9. And after he did that, these Jews came to him, and what gives you the right to do that on the Sabbath? Jesus says, if you have an ox or a donkey that falls into a well or a son that falls into a ditch, won't you go out and pull him out on the Sabbath? Of course they would. So they were being contradictory, and they were being legalistic, and they had made up their own traditions about the, the Sabbath instead of following God. Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And <clears throat> when he says that he and the Father are one in that passage in John, they pick up stones again to stone him. And he eludes them. I don't know how he did that. I don't know if he was a ninja, you know, and went through the crowd. Uh, I just don't know how he did it. But he just disappeared, and they couldn't get him. You see this many times in John's Gospel. Finally, when he keeps saying, My hour has not yet come, in chapter 12, a bunch of Greek men have come looking for Jesus, and they come to the two disciples whose names are Greek, Philip and Andrew, and they say, we want to see Jesus. And Philip and Andrew go tell Jesus, the Greeks are here and want to see you. And Jesus said, my hour has come. And now he knows that he has a week to live and will be soon dying on the cross. Four Gospels. Let me uh, have just a few minutes. Let's stop and 
see what questions you might have if you have